Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for you, our surely, truly God, who deserves our, our lives and our thanksgiving and our praise. And it is for you whom we desire to live for, to, you, to use every day that you've given us here on earth, to bring you glory, to make your name known throughout the world. Equip us now with your word, we pray. Uh, equip our, uh, give us your spirit's guidance and leading into your truths. Help us to not only understand your text, but understand your text's um, application to each of our lives and to the life of your church as a whole. As your people of God today, people today, we pray that you would direct us and that we, you would give us ears to hear and uh, a faith to follow and obey. Uh, we pray that you uh, would uh, help uh, Help, help me to proclaim your word clearly, and we pray that in all that, uh, in all that your word, uh, as it comes forth, that it would accomplish, Lord, your purposes in each and every soul gathered here. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Once more, Numbers chapter 33 is where we're going to be, Numbers 33. Numbers 33, and this is a very, uh, um, it's one of those uh, kind of, well, it's, it's interesting <laughs> if you uh, are a student of the scriptures, and you, uh, because it's, a, it's an unusual passage to, to preach from, um, but it is, uh, as you'll see, there's just a lot of uh, repetition throughout, and those you know, kind of sim- uh, similar sounding statements, but uh, this is being the word of God, uh, inspired and profitable for, for all all our lives, and that it would teach and and, uh, and equip us to be uh, to be the work, workers of God who accomplishes work. Well, uh, I begin with uh, reminding you, some of you who lived through the '80s, some of you who were not even born in the '80s yet. I can't imagine that. Uh, wow! But in the '80s, <clears throat> there was a poem uh, that was popular and printed on. On many uh, Christian posters and cards, Did any of you have one of these in your home? Anybody? Just me? Okay, just me. All right, all right. Well, I guess that's why I'm having it here now. But yeah, I'm, you know, you can uh, Google it and find it. It's called Footprints in the Sand, it, and it's a pretty cool. It's kind of a you know, kind of a you know, touchy feely kind of poem. But the gist of the poem is, I like it though. It, it was impactful as a young man whenever I look at it and say, oh, that's kind of cool. But anyway, the gist of the poem involves a man dreaming that he was walking with the Lord along a beach. Okay? And as he walked with the Lord, he sees the scenes from his life uh, across the sky. And, and as he does so, he observes in the sand there are uh, two sets of footprints uh, where the Lord walked with him or he walked with the Lord. But at the end, with, after the final scene, he noticed that many times in his life, as he, uh, as he viewed his life, there would be times in the, in the sand he would notice only one set of footprints. And he was usually at those very lowest and very saddest of times in his life. And that bothered him, of course, and so he asked the Lord about it. He said, I don't understand why, when I needed you most, 
you would leave me. And, of course, the punchline of this poem is that the Lord replies, My precious, precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. And uh, well, it touches my heart even now as I read it. <laughs> I guess I'm just a sentimental guy. But <clears throat> that poem, which encouraged me as a young Christian, uh, reflects uh, biblical truths. Uh, biblical truths that, uh, that is conveyed in this poem, but illustrated really, or uh, in our text today. That we are reminded that in our uh, most trying and weakest of moments, when we are in our frailty, uh, are pushed to the limits of our life, and we're tested uh, in our faith, uh, those are often uh, the moments in our life where uh, the Lord carries us because He promises to be with us. He will never forsake us. And when we look upon those times, when we look back on the footprints in the sand, especially those moments when you see that the Lord was carrying you, it is an encouragement to us to trust in Him more today and, and into the future. Today's passage, uh, Numbers 33, is a record of a real-life review of the journeys of Israel with the Lord. And it serves to remind Israel of God's faithfulness during uh, their 40-year wandering in the wilderness, all the way from Egypt into the land of Canaan. And it serves to encourage God's people then, as well as God's people now, to trust and obey Him. This chapter, just as a (coughs) bit of review, continues the preparation of the second generation of Israel before entering the promised land. And this is part of the section from chapter 26 through 36 that covers that second generation. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the second generation of Israelites, of God's people, are camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan River opposite Jericho. And what follows in this chapter is an overview of Israel's journey from Egypt to Canaan. And as Israel looks back on how the Lord led them, and they will be encouraged and are encouraged to faithfully follow him in the days ahead. And as an outline today, we we'll look at it in, uh, it's really 42 stages, technically. It's 42 different locations uh, that Israel journeys to the wilderness. I didn't think you could bear 42 points, so I'll summarize into three three stages of Israel's journey that exhibit God's faithfulness to his people and enjoin their faithfulness to him. And hopefully the application is we'll, we as will will look at this, this history and see God's faithfulness and maybe we'll look at our own lives and look at God's faithfulness to us and that it will encourage you and me to faithfulness to him because of his faithfulness to us. And so first point that we're going to take a look this morning is first thing we, in Israel's journey, uh, is their journey out from Egypt. Their journey out from Egypt in verses 1 to 4. Look at verse 1 to 4 with me of chapter 33. Moses writes, These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting places. They journeyed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. Of the first month. On the next day after the Passover, 
the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. The Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. The key word in this section, as well as in the whole chapter, is this word that's translated as journeys or journeyed. Uh, it's a, it appears 45 times in this chapter alone. Uh, the root meaning of the word journey is to, it literally, it comes from this idea of to pull out, tent, pull out your tent pegs. You know, if you ever go camping, you, if you are you know, a good camper, you, you make sure you put tent pegs at the corners of your tent so that your tent doesn't fly off. But when you're ready to, to move, you're ready to uncamp, to set out, you have to pull out the tent pegs so that you can fold up your tent and then move on. And that came, this uh, word uh, came to mean to break camp, and it came to eventually mean, have the uh, meaning of to set out or to journey. Unsurprisingly, this verb appears more times in Numbers, this, this book about Israel's wandering, more than all the other Old Testament books combined. And so this is a key word in Numbers. It's a key word, particularly in this chapter. The journey, and we learn here that the journey of the sons of Israel begins all the way back in Egypt. It is a journey by which they come, came out from the land of Egypt. Notice also there's a little small prepositional phrase that says, by their armies. It's a little unexpected. It's unusual. Why does it say, by their armies? But simply the fact that it reminds them that as they come out, they, they come out with 600,000 fighting men strong. They, it, that phrase uh, indicates that even this, this list, which, is, uh, uh, which we take a look at, has a, a military perspective. In fact, if um, scholars, when they compare this list with other kind of lists in ancient Near East literature, the closest thing that comes to it are basically lists of cities that kings would, have, would conquer as they go around on their campaigns, and they would be listed in this way. And so this is almost like a, a military campaign uh, list, similar to uh, ancient Near East literature. Here, uh, and so these Israelites came out of Egypt not with their tails under their, behind their legs or under their legs. They didn't come out as refugees, just trying to, with the barely getting, the, saving their lives. They came out as a mighty formed army. And we see this reflected in both censuses that were numbered, where the numbered men were of fighting age were counted. At the leadership of these armies were Moses and Aaron. And uh, we're reminded that, uh, that these, this army of Israel uh, were led by Moses and Aaron as well. And it's just a reminder that God leads his people, ultimately, right? We know that God leads his people, and that's what he's doing here. But he does so through human leaders. That's what God does for God's people. You know, uh, some people say, well, I don't, need, uh, I don't need any leader, I just need God. Well, that's good, it's true, you only need God, it's true. But, you know, God will often lead you through the the human leaders that he places in society as well as in the church that's around us. That's why government is even called a servant of God, as a minister of the Lord. And, of course, in the church there are leaders such as elders and pastors and shepherds, and even deacons and deaconesses are leaders as well. Verse 2 tells us, though, that it was the Lord who commanded Moses to record the places where Israel journeyed. So all these records, this is intentional that was written down and God had told Moses to do so 
And the very first place that we see that they set out was, was from a place called Ramses in Egypt. Verse 3 tells us the date, in fact, when they left Egypt. It's the 15th day of the first month of that first year. It was the day after that first Passover, as we learned. And you know, what? we remember what happened in the Passover, when the people were instructed by God to apply the blood of the lamb to their doorposts. It was the night on that night in which the 10th and final plague was going to strike Egypt. It was the night where every Israelite shared a meal together in their home of lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. It was that 10th and final plague where when, they, when the Lord went through and he struck down every firstborn all across Egypt, he passed over and spared every firstborn of Israel because they had applied the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. But in that tenth and final plague, God had judged Egypt by striking down every firstborn. That plague, we learn here, was a judgment, in fact, on Egypt's gods, showing them that their gods that they believed in, Egypt had a lot of gods, that they were really powerless. They were shown to be false. They couldn't protect their worshipers, their firstborns. But for Israel, their God, the Lord their God, had protected them and kept them safe. And so by reviewing how the Lord was their cause of their journey out from the land of Egypt, Israel here in these first four verses was reminded that their God is faithful. God was faithful and mighty to keep his promises to his people. That when he did that, he, <clears throat> it was not just something he did on a whim, but it was something he did in fulfillment of something that he had promised to Abraham. And if you go all the way back to Genesis 15, that's how far it goes back. 400 years earlier, in fact. In Genesis 15, uh, God, is, uh, God appears to Abram, and, uh, and he says these things to Abram, and he had already made the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, but he reiterates here in Genesis 15. But he, it gives him, gives him insight into what's going to happen to his descendants. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God, we see here, makes a couple promises to Abram. He says, your, your descendants are going to go down to be strangers in a land. That's the land of Egypt, we know. They can become enslaved there, oppressed there for 400 years. And that's exactly how many years they were enslaved there. But God promised that he would judge the nation that would oppress them. And that's what he did with Egypt. But not only does he promise to judge them, but he promises too that they would come out and he would return them to the promised land, to where Abraham was at this point. And he would do so because we will significantly, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God would give the Amorites 400 years to repent of their sins, of their idolatry, of their evil wickedness, of their child sacrifices, and all that sorts. <clears throat> the fact that God had kept his promise to judge Egypt. Uh, would also certainly then be an encouragement to Israel that he would be faithful to keep his promise to return them 
to the promised land. They had already seen that God had already kept his promise to judge Egypt, to deliver them out of Egypt, and just as he promised to Abraham. And so if he kept that promise, then certainly he is, he is able, he is powerful, and he will, as he is good, to keep his promise to return them into the promised land, even though at this point they're still in the plains of Moab. Now, that's point number one, reviewing the, <coughs> the journey of Israel out from Egypt. After this introduction, Moses then records the bulk of Israel's journey throughout their 40 years. And it's uh, their journey in the wilderness, in the wilderness. And this is a long section, but I'm going to read it all at once. Um, and then we'll kind of try to highlight a few things. And as I read these names of the places that Israel journey, uh, try to, you know, just as for your mental exercise, and try to, you know, because a lot of these names are going to be unfamiliar to us. A lot of them are hard to pronounce. But try to listen for names that may be familiar to, to you and I, to you and me. Maybe they might jog something in your mind and say, oh, I remember that name. Or, or, and maybe some, if you have Bibles, they have cross-references, then you can actually make a mental note to look up those passages somewhere else during the week, and you'll see that these are all these, a lot of these places, or a good number of these places, have uh, passages in Exodus, Leviticus, Exodus, Exodus, Numbers, as well as Deuteronomy, where some of these events are, are elaborated. Um, <clears throat> but let us listen then to this journey, and, and uh, let's hear what God has to say. Verse 5 through 49. Then the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses and camped in Succoth. They journeyed from Succoth and camped in Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. They journeyed from Etham and turned back to Pi-Hahiroth, which faces Baal-Ziphon. And they camped before Migdal. They journeyed from before Hahiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. They journeyed from Marah and came to Elam, and in Elam there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. They journeyed from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They journeyed from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dafka. They journeyed from Dafka and camped at Elush. They, camped at, from, they journeyed from Elush and camped at Rephidim. Now it was there that the people had no water to drink. They journeyed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hateva. They journeyed from Kibroth Hateva and camped at Hazaroth. They journeyed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. They journeyed from Rithma and camped at Rimnan Perez. They journeyed from Rimon Perez and camped at Libna. They journeyed from Libna and camped at Rissa. They journeyed from Rissa and camped at Kahaletha. They journeyed from Kahaletha and camped at Mount Shefer. They journeyed from Mount Shefer and camped at Harada. They journeyed from Harada and camped at Makaloth. They journeyed from Makaloth and camped at Tehath. They journeyed from Tehath and camped at Tira. They journeyed from Tira and camped at Mithka. They journeyed from Mithka and camped at Hashmona. They journeyed from Hashmona and camped at Moseroth. 
They journeyed from Moseroth and camped at Benajaakin. They journeyed from Benajaakin and camped at Hor Haggadad. They journeyed from Hor Haggadad and camped at Jotbatha. They journeyed from Jotbatha and camped at Abrona. They journeyed from Abrona and camped at Ezion Geber. They journeyed from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. They journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor at the edge of the land of Edom. Then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the sons of Israel and come, had come from the land of Egypt. On the first day in the fifth month, Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the sons of Israel. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. They journeyed from Zalmona and camped at Punan. They journeyed from Punan and camped at Oboth. They journeyed from Oboth and camped at Ea-Abarim at the border of Moab. They journeyed from Eim and camped at Dibon-Gad. They journeyed from Dibon-Gad and camped at Almon-Diblathaim. They journeyed from Almon-Diblathaim and camped in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo. They journeyed from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth as far as Abel Shatim in the plains of Moab. Now I know for most of you and myself included, the names of these places are unfamiliar to us. They have little meaning for the majority of us. But if you think about it, and you can probably just imagine, for the Israelites who journeyed in the wilderness, every single name was a place, a location where they lived, where they dwelt, where they celebrated, where they, where they worshipped, where they died, where people were born, where people were raised. Sometimes they were there for two days, sometimes they were there for a month, sometimes they were there for a year or more. But these were all places that they camped along their journey. Several of these places are detailed elsewhere in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we see here this general pattern, though, right? They journeyed from place X, place X, and camped at place Y. And so here we see, not only along with the word journeyed, we see another key word in this chapter, the word camped. Um, over half it's this word camped, it's just this picture tent. Over half its Old Testament occurrences are, are in numbers, nearly a third in chapter 33 alone. And if you remember, camping was a significant thing for Israel because that's what they would be doing uh, throughout their wilderness wandering. In fact, in the early chapters of Numbers, you recall in Numbers chapter 2 and Numbers chapter 3 that God gave very specific instructions to the nation about how to camp, where to camp. How they would camp around the tabernacle, which side of the tabernacle they would camp in, and how they'd be led and guided. Most significantly, they would learn when they would camp, and they learned about when they would set out. And they learned that those times when they camp and when they would set out were to be directed by the Lord Himself. Hmm. Oh. Uh, I had a map. Well, anyways, uh, <clears throat> there's a map here that you can see where they traveled. But in Numbers chapter 9, verse 17, 18, we remember this passage. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. You see that word set out in this text? It's the same word as journey, translated journey, same word. It's that word camp, it's the same word translated camp here. And so here we see this repetition. They, they set out and they camped. NAS translates journey, but, and that, that is the idea. But, but this repetition recalls the words from Numbers 9. It recalls that in every place, all 42 different locations, all the 42 different stages, these stations of life that Israel experienced in the 40 years of wandering, every single one of them was led by the Lord. God told them when they would leave that place, and God told them where to camp. God then told them that then where to leave that place and when to camp then at the next place through the cloud that would uh, settle over the, over the tabernacle or be removed from the tabernacle to the front of Israel. You see, throughout their 40 years in the wilderness, because of that, the visual reminder of that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night, Israel learned that the Lord, their God, never left them. He was always there among them, dwelling in their midst in the tabernacle. God was faithful. And though they were unfaithful many times, the Lord remained faithful to them. He never never just like up and left them. He was always there with them. And what's remarkable about this list of journeys is that if you look at this list, there's little said uh, about the various places. There's no description. If you, when we go to Deuteronomy chapters 1 and 3, uh, if you go there and, and there's a review of the journey of Israel, you get a lot more detail, much more detail. The comments here, this, this happened here, this happened there. But here it's just simply this list of all these places that they set out and camped. And the, the silence of it all is, is striking. It's, it's as if God wants them just to remember that wherever they journeyed, wherever they set out, and wherever they camped, was by the will of the Lord, by their God. However, in this text, there are a handful of times that additional comments are made. And as we look at this list, and and as Israel would probably recall this list, they would have remembered in these very locations, not maybe to us today, because they're unfamiliar to us, but for every Israelite who had journeyed along the way, who had dwelt in these places and lived in these places and were born in these places and died in these places and, uh, and you know, etc., they would have been reminders to them of God's presence in their life. And so we see in this list uh, for Israel two kind of reminders. And we summarize it first by God's faithfulness. And that's the running theme of Numbers. I appreciate the songs we've sung about God's faithfulness. Uh, that is the theme that we see throughout uh, uh, Numbers as well, but particularly this chapter. God is faithful throughout their journeys in the wilderness. Throughout this location, there are times where God was faithful to protect them, where God was faithful to provide for them. In verse 8, we see it, Ahiroth. Uh, we may not think much of that location. Um, but it was there that Israel passed through the midst of the sea. Recorded in Exodus chapter 14, Pharaoh and his army had chased Israel to the place where they were now basically with the sea behind their back. 
And, but Israel were the, watched as the Lord basically caused the Red Sea to, to part so that they could cross over it. And he kept the army of Pharaoh at bay until they safely crossed and then allowing Pharaoh's army to go in. And of course, God brought the waters back down and his Pharaoh and his army was completely destroyed. God was faithful to Israel. In verse 14, at a place called Rephidim, God gave Israel victory over the, king, uh, the kingdom of Amalek that had come out to attack Israel. Remember that? That's where Moses had to keep his, <laughs> lift his arms up. And as long as he lifted his arms up, then they would have victory. It just got tired. And then, you know, so they had to, he needed help to keep his arms up. In verse 15, Israel camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And that's kind of amazing. In the wilderness of Sinai, is such a significant, all of Exodus is basically at Sinai, right? That's where God gave them the law on Mount Sinai. God called Moses, gave him just once, and then he, had that, he broke it because, you know, he was upset. And then he could, went up the second time, got it again. But God gave them his law. God provided instructions for how they could, would, were to approach him, to worship him, to know him. Then in verse 37 to 39 of this uh, journey, we see Aaron's death is recorded. It's probably the most uh, detailed of all the events that are mentioned or briefly alluded in this chapter. Relatively, it's, it's, a great, it's great compared to the others. But what's significant about Aaron's death is that it, it marks the 40th year of their journey. It is there where the, the first generation of their leaders begins to die, Aaron being the priest. It is the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come out from the land of Egypt on that first day of the fifth month. And it tells us how old he was and how he died on Mount Hor. But the date of his death, but the fact is, that becomes the death of Aaron becomes the marker, the beginning marker for Israel. That's, when they think of the death of Aaron, they think that's the completion of 40 years. And when you think about those 40 years, and all, all the fighting men of Israel had died in, that, in those 40 years in the wilderness, but you know who didn't die? Their children. The ones who they were afraid that would die in the wilderness they didn't die because God had preserved them. There's also the mention there in the verses that follow there of Mount Hor, where at Mount Hor, where the king of Arad had attacked Israel, and God gave Israel victory over their enemies. So in all these ways and these kind of these various places and others that I did not mention, God continually, consistently showed his faithfulness to Israel. And Israel, as they heard this list, would have remembered his faithfulness. But secondly, not only do, does Israel, are they reminded of God's faithfulness in the wilderness to them, but they also are reminded of God's forgiveness in the wilderness. Several of the locations in this list are places where Israel sinned against the Lord and his leaders, Aaron and Moses. In verse 8, Israel had gone three days in the wilderness, it mentioned, and they camped at a place called Marah. According to Exodus 15, to 24, there was there that the people could not find any water after three days. And even Amara, it's called Mara because it's, it means bitter. The, the water they did find, it was bitter water. And so they began to grumble and complain against Moses. It was, a, of course, we've seen in Numbers, that's the long chain of grumbling, complaining of the people of God. And, you know, we, we do tend to grumble and complain, especially when there, it was, we face difficulties and trials. And yet, it was... And then, in addition to that, in verse 11, it says that it marks how they were camped in the wilderness of sin. And according to Exodus chapter 16, verse 1 to 3, there was there that they had complained about not having food. And because of their complaints, God gave them manna. In verse 14, they camped at Rephidim. 
And there, according to Exodus 17:1, they complained against Moses. In verse 16, they count that Kibroth Hataeva, where Israel was basically again complaining, not having enough food. They wanted meat. God gave them quail, and they ate so much they were greedy, and God, God judged them. But perhaps greatest of all, of all these locations that are mentioned where that might have marked Israel's, Israel's failures, Israel's sin, was verse six, is the mention of Kadesh in verse 36. Kadesh and Kadesh Barnea was where the first generation had rebelled and refused to enter the promised land, and that basically begun the, 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 wander, the cycle, the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It's interestingly, they, it seems as we, if we look at this text that the very first time that they arrive at Kadesh is not mentioned in this, in this passage at all. That when it's mentioned here in verse 36, it, and because you just compare what happens with fall, that is Aaron's death, it seems that the mention of verse 36 is the second time that they arrive back at Kadesh, where near Mount Hor, Aaron goes, dies in that 40th year. So in this passage, we see these locations where Israel had sinned. No mention is made of Israel's sin whatsoever. You get that. When you look at Deuteronomy 23, you'll see that. But here we don't. It's as if, for sure, Israel would have remembered their grumbling. They would have remembered the plagues. They would remember the diseases. They would remember the serpents. They remember all the times that God judged them for their sin and disciplined them. But when he reviews the journey from their, from their Egypt into the Canaan promised land, it's God does not bring, bring it up again to them here. He wants them to know, and almost it's conveying to them that it's been forgiven. The Lord had disciplined them, and the sons of Israel had repented. Their leaders had acted as mediators for them, interceding for them, offering the appropriate sacrifices for them, covering their sin, and God continued to dwell among them, even though they were sinners. Their sins are forgiven and forgotten. God had provided in his law the instructions for how they could offer sin offering, guilt offerings for whenever those times that they sinned against the Lord. It's a wonderful, it's an encouraging thought, you know, even for us, you know. You think back to your life, you're going to be so many times, I, I know I do my, I kick myself sometimes, you know, maybe you do, you do too. You, uh, you, you beat yourself up because you think about the this past sins, you know. You think, oh man, oh. How could I be so foolish and do that? How could I, how could I, you know, how could I be so careless? How could I be so rebellious against the Lord? And uh, it's easy to, you know, there, there ought to be sorrow over sin, but if it's sin that's been confessed and if it's sin that you've repented of, then we should remember that that is forgiven because of Christ. It's been forgiven. It's, it's the past. And the Lord accepts us because of Christ who died in our place. And that should encourage us and that, that should do something in us. When we reflect back to God's faithfulness and God's forgiveness throughout the journeys of our life, it should cause us to, to rejoice. It should cause us to, to be thankful. Just think about all the times that God has been faithful to you. Think about all the times where you failed and God forgave you. What does that do for you? What does that do to our hearts? 
Does it not spur you on to, to want to love God more? Does it not want to make you want to, to live for him more, to trust and obey him more? Every trial that God showed himself faithful, every sin that God showed himself gracious, moved Israel and moves us to love him even more, to long to live him, live for him out of thankfulness. And that's, uh, that's point two, Israel's journey in the wilderness. Lastly, the Lord turns our attention in verses 50 to 56 to Israel's journey in the land of Canaan. This is a journey that has not yet taken place, but it's a journey that is going to take place. And God gives instructions to them in the land for their journey in the land of Canaan in verse 50 to 56. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot, according to your families. To the larger you shall give more inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give less inheritance. Wherever the lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. In light of his faithfulness on their past journey, the Lord now calls Israel to faithfulness in the land of Canaan. He tells them, he tells Moses to give this instruction to the sons of Israel, when you cross over the Jordan, not if, but when, God would keep his promise to return them to Canaan. God is willing, God is able. And then when he does that, when he brings them back into the land, God expected of Israel to do three things. Number one, to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Number two, to destroy all their idols, all their places of worship. And number three, to take possession of the land and divide it by lot according to their tribes and families. These Canaanites that dwelt in the land elsewhere called Amorites, as we saw back in Genesis 15, were idol worshipers, you see. They were idol worshipers of the worst kind. And God knew that if these Canaanites were left in the land, they would tempt Israel to follow after their gods and follow after their wicked and evil practices. Other nations, nations further away, they could spare, but not these Canaanites. Israel was to drive them all out was to just bring down, destroy all their idols, destroy their place of worship, and take inheritance of the land. And if Israel, but if Israel failed to obey, then God said these inhabitants of the land would be as thorns in their sides, pricks in their eyes. Reminds me of yesterday, I was doing some gardening in my backyard, and I have a lot of these, uh, you know, those thorny bushes, those vines that wrap around. And it's funny, because I was thinking, this is exactly what happened to me. 
It was, uh, I was trying to cut some, and I thought, I'm going to go after the big ones, ignore the little ones, right? Just get the big ones first. And they're cutting the big ones. and going. But inevitably, as I'm walking around, those little ones, because I didn't cut them, they're just catching on my leg. They're like, oh, man, I should just cut them too. See, if I'd cut them when I had the opportunity to cut them, they wouldn't have been thorns in my side. Israel had an opportunity to conquer land, to, to, put, <laughs> to destroy and to, to chase out all the Canaanites, but they didn't. They left some of those thorns behind, and they became thorns in the side throughout their, their life in the land of Canaan. God had warned them of the same in, back in Exodus in multiple places, in chapter 23, I think chapter 34, Exodus as well. And sadly, as we know, history records in, jo- in uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua and Judges, <coughs> Israel was unfaithful in this regard. They did not destroy all their enemies. They did not chase them all out. They let several of the different types of people in the land of Canaan continue to dwell. And the repercussions of this are recorded, and we see recorded in the rest of the Old Testament, but it's recorded pretty vividly in Psalm 106. Uh, we read verse 1 to 5 for our call to worship. I want to read for you Psalm 106, verse 34 to 39. This was the result of the fact that when Israel did not obey the Lord and were not faithful to destroy the peoples. Psalm 106, 34, 39, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. Verse 37, they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. In fact, the rest of Psalm 106 gives even more details. But Israel's failure to obey the Lord in Canaan in this regard, in these instructions that God gave them, gave them here, led them to become a nation that eventually, as we see here in verse 37 and, and following, they became a nation that killed their own innocent children. They, offered, they practiced child sacrifices to appease their idols and these demons. <coughs> Before we judge them too quickly, we should take a good look at our own nation. You all know our nation has become a lead, the leading nation in killing innocent children. And I tell you, it's not all the unbelievers' fault. We need to take a look at our own selves. We have a part to play. Christians, too many professing Christians, have failed to follow the Lord's ways, to defend the helpless, the innocent. And we have given our assent and support to the idol of self. We've given our, our assent and support to the leaders of this movement that support abortion on demand at all times. That is a form of idolatry, of evil worship that ought not to be. We as Christians, we don't have to be marching in front of the, every abortion clinic, but when we're given the opportunity, when we're in a conversation, we should be not afraid to speak the truth. And no, it is not loving of your neighbor to support their choice to kill a child. 
We see because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, they would constantly have those Canaanites as thorns in their side. But though they would be unfaithful to God, God remained faithful to Israel. Even in their disobedience, as he did in the wilderness, God, as we know, would discipline his people, even if it meant sending them out of the land, expelling them. For God is faithful to do what it takes to bring his people to repentance. And brothers and sisters, the Lord wants us to be faithful to him as he leads us on our journey here. I'm thankful that he does not call us to drive out anyone, okay, to destroy them all. I'm thankful that he doesn't do that. But he does call us to avoid the idols of our world. Now, you may not have a statue or pictures of your ancestors in your home that you bow down to and offer incense, but there are practices possessions, pursuits, prestige that you may be living your life to serve instead of God. And that is a practical idol. God does not want his people to worship anything else above him. We must be pleased. And whatever days of the journey that he has left for us, we must be faithful to the Lord. We'll wrap up in, in conclusion. Israel in the plains of Moab are reminded of God's faithfulness to them throughout their journey out of Egypt, in the wilderness, and in the land of Canaan. Before they entered the promised land, God would give them the law a second time in the book of Deuteronomy. So we'll, uh, we won't see, but if you read on, you would find that. And in chapters 1 to 3, Moses is going to do a similar review, but he's going to do a review in detail. Over three chapters, he's going to review Israel's journey in a much more detailed way. And as he recounts the event at Kadesh Barnea, he recalls the words that he spoke to fearful Israel at that moment. And I want to share with you those words because they, they, remind, they, bring, they kind of bring us back full circle to our beginning. In, Deuteron- <coughs> in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 29 and 33, Moses writes, Then I said to you, Do not be shocked, nor fear them. They're afraid of the giants in the land. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself, will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son, in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place, But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. In in these few verses, Moses basically recaps this chapter almost. He says, don't be afraid. Why? Because you remembered how God was delivered you out from Egypt. He fought for you there. And why? Because you remember in the wilderness when you went through all those different places and where you sometimes felt you didn't have enough food, you sometimes didn't have enough water, sometimes you were afraid of your enemies. God was carrying you all throughout those days. And he was leading you by night and by day. And remember, that's what Moses had said to them. But still... They had, at that moment at Kadesh, failed 
to trust the Lord their God. As you look back on your life, in every stage of your journey, you will see God's faithfulness. And you will see how he delivered you, and you will see how he carried you in the wilderness. And even so, as you look upon that, the choice is yours to make, is that the response, the natural response ought to be to be faithful to God. But the question is, will you strive to be faithful to him as he leads you today and in the future? I'll leave you with uh, three questions just for your discussion in your small groups. As you look back upon your life, how do you see God's faithfulness and forgiveness? I know that the list could be long, just a couple highlights perhaps. Secondly, how does knowing that the Lord has carried you in the past affect how you live and trust him today? And thirdly, are there any practices, possessions, pursuits, or prestige that you are seeking, pursuing above the Lord? And if so, that's that's an idol that you need to confess and repent to the Lord of and, and cast it aside. With that, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for your truths. Um, thank you for showing us that throughout the journeys of Israel and in the wilderness, from Egypt all the way to Canaan, you were faithful to them. And many times you forgave them. God, we praise you and thank you that just as it encouraged Israel to faithfulness in when they enter in the promised land. We pray that as we reflect upon your faithfulness to us in our lives, the forgiveness that you've offered to us in Christ in our lives, throughout our days, that it would too spur us on to strive to be faithful to you, to follow your ways, to be the people who reflect your truths in our world, who will stand up against wickedness and evil, stand up for the innocent, that would speak your truths, truths that bring life for those who are dead and bring light to those who are in the darkness. God, enable us as your people to faithfully fulfill your work that you call us to do until you bring us home. These things we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.